Hello and welcome back to this special edition of the Metaverse podcast. This podcast is a two-part series that will look back at the key trends in Web3 over 2022 and examine how they will affect the investor and builder landscape over the course of 23. All this will be told through interviews with our outliers, subject matter experts selected from the outlier team of over 100 staff and organized to cover most of the different areas of specialisms and expertise across Web3. Overall, the point of this podcast is to help founders, builders, and the Web3 curious find their feet in the space and know what to look out for as we look into 23. And this episode is no different. We hope that founders coming to this space will step away with a clearer overview of where we stand as an industry and the key areas to focus on as we look forward into the future. So today we've got a special edition end of year episode with more outlier people. So we've got Elliot and Blake who both work within Basecamp running specific thematic programs for us. Blake working across fashion, lifestyle and culture and a collaboration with Farfetch and Elliot working on a new program that we're launching around zero knowledge proofs with several of the leading players in the ZK space. Welcome both. Thank you, Jamie. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So look, let's get straight into it. As I said, you guys are kind of pioneering more thematic-led programs. And historically, we've worked very closely with protocol ecosystems. That's great. We continue to do that. And we enjoyed lots of success. But we have identified a number of trends, and both in terms of the kind of level of applications that are coming through within those themes, but then also the kind of demand coming from our investor network, asking for startups within within these certain categories. So maybe like, let's let's jump in to you. You're what, midway through the program now as we're in December Q4 22. As I said, you're running the collaboration with the Farfetch Dream Assembly Basecamp program. Could you maybe just talk a little bit about the collaboration firstly with Farfetch and, and other participants in the industry? And then I guess maybe the, the kind of strategic goals for, for the various parties and we can get into the thesis a little bit later. Of course. So how is that program different from a protocol focused program? Well, first of all, we're when you're running a protocol-focused program, we're a bit of a guest in the ecosystem that's already established with established players and developers, and that's how we need to make our mark. In a vertical-focused program, whether we want it or not, it feels very much like we're helping co-create the ecosystem. And in this respect, Farfetch is absolutely instrumental as a partner. What's the most exciting component to me is all that organizational back-and-forth learning that goes on between us and Farfetch. Of course, they're already quite fluent with web-free components, but leveraging our expertise at OV allows them to kind of double down on that expertise, whereas we can really learn quickly which lessons from the world of legacy fashion transfer into this new domain of web-free fashion. And of course, it's the network effect in the ecosystem. Again, rather than being a guest in an existing ecosystem, you have to put a new ecosystem in place around the program. So with huge support from Farfetch, we managed to bring on board absolutely leading minds in web-free fashion, luxury, and lifestyle that supported a very strong cohort of eight startups through this journey. And um, not only senior leadership from Farfetch were meeting with startups, were providing modules of knowledge specific to the fashion and luxury industry, but also were providing very specific strategic advice to each one of those projects. The kind of process that we go through is quite iterative. So this is one of several that we're going to run. It's the first one. Up front, before we start a program, we do kind of thesis co-development. But then, of course, you can't always predict the startups that then apply. 
or those that then get the most traction when they're in the program. Could you maybe just talk about like the starting point where we set out the kind of themes that we were looking at as we designed the, the cohort and then the the kind of startups, the range of startups that applied and some of the emergent themes? Of course, with pleasure. So originally, the thesis was very much focused on the future utility of digital fashion. What how do those clothes or designs operate exactly? And what's the utility that can drive a greater adoption? We were thinking about immersive luxury experiences. And I do confirm having the experience of that program and seeing how currently luxury brands seems to compete. This is a very big technology area and an attractive field of investment. Anything regarding community curation, even the marketplace is a form of community curation, but in fashion, it can go way beyond the luxury creator economy. And, and finally, the topic of tokenized loyalty. And going through the selection, and it was a huge number, more than 200 applicants that were kind of qualified to apply to this program and that we selected a cohort of eight from. A really high level of founders, all driven by the passion to define the future of the industry. However, very different stages, both in commercial and product development, but in the Basecamp format are kind of mechanisms in place to provide a more tailor-made approach for each case. So that also taught us a lot. And what we're currently see emerging as trends well, we had a project co-alter in the cohort that was digitizing and monetizing archival IP of fashion brands to kind of ensure that they can make their mark in the future moving forward. We had a Menkiri, which was creating 3D at scale, creation of 3D digital twins at scale from 2D photos, which touches on a very big scalability problem in web-free fashion, which is the scalability of digital design. And projects like RepDot provides a new way to express your identity through avatars and related fashion themes, because in the end of the day, it's all about identity expression in fashion. Other themes that we started to see or opportunities that we started paying attention to as the program unfolded, well, currently, while the situation in the wider web-free market is somewhat rough, the trend of brands entering the space with culturally significant IP is not slowing down. So the market is growing rapidly in this nascent domain, and the actors compete in surprising ways, presenting great opportunities for investment. Infrastructure that helps assets become more interoperable or makes the production of those assets more scalable. The way brands engage with the audience from tokenized loyalty to engage to earn, all the way to brands making the mark through those immersive luxury experiences, often offered to token-gated communities. And finally, in fashion, your network is indeed your network, even more than other industries. So community tooling and the curation is a big field. It's the technology backbone of free self-expression in Web3. Very cool. Just want to drill down into one more thing and we'll jump over to Elliot. And it was around, you mentioned immersive experiences. And I know consistently across other programs, but I think especially in this one, this convergence of technologies, AR and VR with the world of Web3. Can you talk to that a little bit in the context of immersive or augmented experiences? Of course. What makes a wearable a wearable? In which context you could use that people... Outside of Web3, tend to think about the metaverse in context of VR, but to me, it was always more about mixed reality, argumented reality. In many ways, people are already doing tangible digital fashion by using Snapchat filters and using AR that way. However, I think we're only experiencing the beginning of traditional luxury brands embracing those technologies, understanding that they need to engage in their audiences in new ways, that the rules of the game has changed. And... Essentially, they need to reinvent the way they talk to the customers through those components and the utility they provide to the brand IP through mixed reality and augmented reality. A 3D design file is not a wearable if you cannot wear it anywhere. And what a better place to wear it than extended reality. Great. Thanks, Blake. Mr. Elliot, obviously, ZK is 
There's different levels of understanding about what we mean when we say ZK. A lot of people will think of it in terms of kind of developer tooling, protocols, but ultimately it is this kind of horizontal technology that could be applied to any number of use cases. Firstly, kind of how do you see the ZK opportunity at a thesis level for the program? And then maybe we can go down and drill down a little bit into where we're seeing applications come from, you know, what types of use cases lend themselves best to innovations around ZK. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know what, what really is exciting for us looking at, at zero-notch proofs is that it, it enables privacy on chain, and that just opens up a whole new host of applications that can be that can be delivered on chain. Right? Currently, we we trade off our privacy and, and our data for convenience. Right? I, I let Google read my emails so that I don't get spammed. But ultimately, I'd rather not have to give up that privacy. And what's really exciting about zero-notch proofs is that I can then I can then gain access to services without having to give up that that data. And what that what that opens up in terms of applications, you know, is everything from identity to hidden information games, online voting. The the field in terms of privacy, private applications is, is pretty much limitless. And just think about how many interactions you have on a day-to-day basis that's private. So if you can bring that on-chain, then all of a sudden this whole new host of application opens up to the blockchain. And then the second piece that makes zero knowledge proofs really exciting is this the scalability that it offers blockchain. So uh, blockchains at the at the base at the L1 layer layer one have been struggling with the scalability trilemma. Right? If you want to be decentralized and secure, you generally have to give up scalability. And what zero knowledge proofs enables these chains to do is to remain decentralized and secure, but to offload some of the heavier computation. And then to prove to the to the chain that you've actually done the right the right actions, and then record that on chain. What that means is that it really enables a smoother user experience. Right, gas cost becomes insignificant to the point where applications can do that on behalf of their of their users. And it's really what's what's going to drive sort of the, the adoption of blockchain as an underlying technology that you and I won't see the difference from using the the web apps that we're using today. And so that's that's on the thesis. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say we've got a, we've got a number of kind of key partners coming into this program. I think pretty much every major player. Could you just talk about that stack of partners and how they can help startups develop and deploy in the program? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the the advantages of having this thematic approach is that we're not locked into one specific ecosystem, especially because zero knowledge proofs applied to blockchain is still really early. We're able to help startups find the ecosystem where their application is going to be best served. So we're working with, as you mentioned, most most of the leading players in the space. I think we have seven now. So that's Alio, Aztec, Polygon, Immutable, Nethermind, Async, and Starkware. And between these seven partners, really, we can serve all the host of applications that are being built on blockchain on using zero-knowledge proofs from gaming all the way up to private applications or applications that are solely focused on scaling. So let's drill down a little bit into some of the kind of applications that we're seeing come through. So on the one hand, as you said, it's early, so we're expecting more tooling, more middleware. At the same time, I guess there are certain industries where this is just fundamental to allowing Web3 to actually be applied. Like without it, it, the use cases where things just wouldn't happen on chain. Could you maybe talk us through the the spectrum of startups that are applying? Yeah, absolutely. So we are seeing quite a few middleware, especially on the privacy side, that's helping keep certain information private. 
benefits. And then, and then we're also seeing sort of, as you mentioned, these industries that are benefiting that could not have built on Web3 before, so such as like gaming, especially if, you know, any sort of game where you're going to keep some information private, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have been able to build that before. And then, and then finally, we're seeing quite a bit of work around identity. So just any form of authentication, whether, you know, the most basic ones that we're seeing now is like maybe KYC, on-chain KYC, where you don't have to reveal that you've KYC, but you can already interact with sort of more compliant ecosystems. And then that, and then ranging all the way to credentials, proving that you've earned certain university degrees. And so those, those are some of the wide range of applications we're seeing on the app, on the, on the Zero and Six program. Well, I'm, I'm really happy to hear on the identity side because this is just so fundamental until we solve for decentralized identity. We don't have Web3. So that's great to see that there are a number of different approaches coming to market there. Hopefully we can help some of them. So look, Blake, back to you in, in 22 has been a exciting year generally for fashion and Web3 and NFT adoption. A number of large brands have been coming into the space. Could you talk about some of the more interesting events from this year and potentially some of the kind of more anticipated things coming through into 23 or any particular areas that you're really interested in in finding startups working in? With pleasure. So in context of the brands entering the space, after the general NFT bull run, the world got excited with Web3, attracted the art crowds to the industry and NFT brought changes to industries like music or sports. But in fashion, they really changed the fundamentals, which led to an explosion of creativity in the fashion community that got the attention of brands. Initially, the brands started monetizing Web3 components, but then gradually they came to understand that the stakes are much higher and Web3 is the way to secure the cultural significance of their IP in a rapidly moving technology and communications landscape. Digital fashion as a concept illustrates that some of the most pressing pain points of a legacy industry could be addressed with Web3 components, such as examples as pollution through production and fast consumption of fashion can be eliminated or eliminating counterfeits that are a huge value drain and a threat to the brand image in the overall fashion industry. In terms of events that were very notable, I was particularly impressed, and the program was very well represented in that event, with what played out in Miami during Art Basel. So the, during Art Basel, Miami already has a very active, I would say, web-free community, and the art community comes down for the Festival of Art. But last year, it felt that those crowds were still separate crowds. You would go to an art party and people would ask you, what is an NFT? This year, it felt like all those worlds found a common touch point, which is web-free fashion. So not only there was a, the central fashion track, there was a digital fashion breakfast by Dressex and Fabricant, there was a Metaverse Fashion Week event, there was, of course, the amazing Prada Extends event dedicated to the holders of their NFT time capsule collection. But overall, the caliber of people that the event attracted, the networking opportunities, as well as knowledge leadership that came out from that event, it was really impressive and makes me feel really good about the, the next year. Of course, we're already thinking about the recruitment for the next cohort, so we're excited for that. The problems, solutions to which particularly excite me would include the interoperability of assets, but also making a tangible, reliable, and verifiable connection between a physical asset and a digital asset, which potentially very simple but very big implication commercially could enable brands to benefit from the sales and secondary markets of their assets. And the secondary luxury fashion is currently growing quicker than the legacy, the luxury fashion proper market. So that's a huge untapped value for the brands that web-free companies can help them capture. And I'm really excited about that. And 
the next event when we also try to make sure that the program has a prominent present is also the luxury symposium on the 26th of January in Milan, where leading web free companies meet the legacy luxury brands and executives to kind of think of POCs and ways to collaborate and build this new industry together. Very cool. I think I want Blake's life. It sounds 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 like I might need to pivot into the world of Blake. So Elliot, <laughs> if we if we kind of close off, looking forward into twenty three, even beyond ZK, I and mean, I know you're very excited about ZK naturally. Otherwise, you you wouldn't be running that specific program. But what's exciting you generally about twenty three and Web three? Well, I think that it's twenty three in, in Web three, and I would say I think that the, the Bringing privacy into the mix is just going to open so many new use cases, so many new ways to interact with people, to bring communities together. And I think that that's, that's where I see the next wave of innovation coming. You know, everything from the digital identity, but also just to having decentralized social networks and, and starting to, to bring more of your identity on chain, you know, whether, whether it's, it's through fashion or preferences or communities that you're part of in real lives that also start to be part of your day-to-day in Web3. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see more work done around Web3 social graph and how that can be done in a privacy preserving way, especially as we see things like Instagram connecting, you know, existing social graph, Web2 social graph with wallets and, and financial data that feels like a dangerous pathway. So anything which can allow us to create a native form of social graph, privacy by default would be would be super exciting. All right, look, both thanks for coming on. Great to chat to you. I'm really excited about both of your programs in the new year. And of course, if startups are interested in either, go to outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. Thanks both for joining us. Thank you for listening to the session on digital fashion and zero knowledge. Keep listening to hear more about ZK and how it fits into our technical vision of promoting scalability and privacy. Okay, so next up, we've got Rianne Lewis, who works in the product engineering team. Welcome, Rianne. Hey, hey, really nice to be on. So we're continuing talking to various people across the business at Outlier to understand learnings from 2022 and insights that we're kind of taking in to 23 and as well as emergent trends. I mean, lots to talk about from a, from a technical perspective in a relatively limited period of time. So we'll, we'll, we'll see where we get to, but it's always a pleasure talking to you anyway. So I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, we'll make it work. So look, lots of high profile failures, failures in, in different ways, but I know a big outtake for the product engineering team is why decentralization is important. Many of these failings and failures like FTA and others really have highlighted the importance of decentralization, even if it's hard. And I know that feeds into a lot of the advice that you're giving to teams. Could we maybe kind of talk about that? Why is why do these high-profile events highlight the fact that decentralization is important? Yeah, I think this is such an important thing to cover because I think one of the things that a lot of people miss, they look at the headlines around FTX, Celsius, Three Arrows, whatever, and they just go, oh, crypto, DeFi or whatever. Whereas, in fact, these projects, the main reason why they failed is because they were C5 projects. They weren't properly decentralized. And now we have all these projects that tend to kind of cloak themselves in a bit of decentralization theater. They Because it's 
easier to do and UI falling back on the, the experience that people already have. That's the easy thing to do, but it's not the best thing to do. So instead of doing the really hard tasks like educating users about how to use non-custodial wallets and what it really means to participate in proper DeFi, we're really trying to call out this slippage towards using easy options in using centralized solutions or whatever, and guiding engineering teams to genuinely work towards providing services that are properly decentralized, where we're not going to get the issues that we've seen. So working with the teams is one thing, but it also feeds into the way that we select teams for the programs. So when we evaluate teams for the uh, accelerator programs, we don't just look at their investability or how good their technical solutions are. So some teams, they've got amazing technology, but it's basically Web 2 technology and they don't have a real use case for Web 3. So we work with them to figure out whether they've really got the potential to be a decentralized project or not. And we're not afraid to walk away from projects where Web3 doesn't form this real integral part of their value proposition. So when we so when we talk about decentralization, like truly decentralized solutions, what, what do we actually mean? And obviously there have been quite a few innovations coming through into market that can make decentralized applications more usable. You know, whether that's things like Biconomy, of course, in our in our portfolio, but then of course innovations in in zero knowledge, ZK technologies, big part of Q1 for us with our ZK program. Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting point. And I'm glad that you mentioned Biconomy because we really feel that the most important projects going into the future are going to be these infrastructure plays that are forming the real foundation of making Web3 projects more and the whole system more usable in the future. It's interesting that you mentioned ZK Proofs because obviously that's got application across the whole ecosystem from ZK Rollups make, making blockchain technology a lot more scalable than it currently is, to being able to have data off-chain and provide real viable decentralized methods of, you know, proving things like identity and so on in potentially a compliant way while not having this sort of honeypot of personal data. So I think that projects that both are infrastructure projects that make the user experience smoother, for example, you know, with Biconomy, not bogging people down in worrying about what their transaction fees are going to be and so on to ZK proofs. It's all all this stuff that's laying the foundation for the future of Web3 are the things that we're interested in. Yeah, and of course, we've seen some very high profile brands now using things like Polygon, a good partner of ours, to deploy at scale, whether that's Facebook Meta or, or others. But kind of coming back to this this point around decentralization, like what we actually mean when we say decentralization, what what do we believe that technically are the important things for adapt to have in the context of decentralization at a base base layer? I think usability is obviously a really important thing, but the I think the massive thing, the elephant in the room, if you like, is security. And I know that Vitalik himself has obviously been talking a lot about this. And so much of this with the teams that we're working with is figuring out how you program smart contracts to be properly secure, because this is a really difficult problem to solve. And it's difficult because these things are really complex and hard. And much of this is to do with code that's trying to do too many things. So, to me, it's really interesting that the biggest hacks that we've seen during 2022 haven't been the DeFi primitives themselves, like MakerDAO, Uniswap, Aave, which are doing one thing really well. They tend to be bridges. So the biggest hacks we've seen this year have been, you know, Wormhole, Ronin, 
nomad. And this is absolutely because they're trying to do too many things. They cover more than one chain. So you have much more complexity. So for me, one of the issues with dApps is that they focus maybe on one chain first and do that really well before starting to be multi-chain. We're seeing a lot of projects that are suddenly declaring that they're multi-chain and just trying to do way, way too much. So any project that's pushing the boundaries of what's possible in Web3, it becomes much more and more difficult to focus on the and the basics. So within the team as outlier, we're working to encourage teams to use these sustainable development best practices. You, so you can't eliminate the possibility of bugs, but it's going to mitigate some of the dangers. So yeah, as Vitalik himself called out, I think smart contract security is much more important than having the most slick, beautiful UI or whatever. So for me, focusing on the basics is one of the things that I think our team thinks is really important and really does well before you get on to making things all pretty and shiny. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point because, of course, the big the big selling point of Web3 is, is its composability. But of course, that then brings risk. And perhaps there's an extent to which DAP developers can actually be making the most of composability in their infancy as a startup, but perhaps in the stack's infancy overall. And as you say, big, big theme at the moment is, is cross-chain. Everything, it feels like almost everything needs to be cross-chain. Maybe that will will change. We've we've had some analysts from Outlier say there's a refocus back to Ethereum and, and maybe a few more high-profile hacks will bring that through because of course founders are looking to try to remove technical risk. They're managing to be regulatory risk, business model risk. And technical risk is such a big part of, of Web3. So maybe let's shift a little bit into AI. So there's kind of meme going around at the moment, of course, that, you know, all these kind of Web3 investors are now they've re rebranded themselves as, as AI investors. And whilst that's maybe partly true, of course, Web3 has been playing around with generative AI for some time in the context of NFT collections. We at Outlier and, and you also in our network, working in the past at organizations like Ocean Protocol, have for several years now been thinking about the convergence of AI and Web3, and more generally thinking about blockchains as data substrates or ways of commodifying data. How are we looking firstly at things like OpenAI and GPT? What questions does it raise around ownership, ownership of AI and its intelligence? And where might we see the convergence or continued convergence of, of AI and Web3? Such an interesting question. And of course, you know, Outlier being one one of the first organizations to really start thinking about that during the convergence event way back whenever it was 2018, where we were talking about these things. It's really interesting to see everybody now suddenly starting to talk about agents in that way. So yeah, it's fascinating. And of course, a lot of the buzz over the last couple of weeks has been around chat GPT with people saying that it can do this, that, and the other. So thinking one of so it's such a huge topic can't cover the whole thing in two or three minutes so let's zone in specifically on how chat gpt might actually help on the technical side yeah. so we've been playing around with stuff and as you know lorenzo who leads the engineering team here, he wrote this great blog post, which has just been published, where he really put ChatGPT through its paces and put some of these claims to the test. So he and ChatGPT, first of all, to write some simple smart contracts, and then to refactor and interact with, some, with the CryptoPunk smart contract. So 
anyone who's interested can check it out on the OV blog. Our conclusion is that it is absolutely amazing, not for what it does now, but what, but for what it probably will be able to do really, really soon. So I don't think we should fall into the trap of thinking that it's going to be writing smart contracts or auditing smart contracts anytime soon. It was pretty impressive, particularly in terms of being able to explain in plain English what the contracts were doing, what problems there were with them and so on. It wasn't always right, but at some point it will be right. I would say that within the next couple of years, it is going to have this potential to spot vulnerabilities and refactor and so on. You're always going to need humans in the mix. But I think if we were having this conversation now in five years' time about how AI is assisting Solidity developers or assisting smart contract developers in general, we're going to reach a very different conclusion. So ideally, the outlier engineering team in five years' time would revisit this blog, do exactly the same thing and figure it out. Because I think it's absolutely amazing. It's It raises lots and lots of issues, for example, copyright, who owns, you know, who, who has actually written the code that it's learned from, the artworks that it's using for generative things. People will work that out. I actually think it's one of the most exciting things that's happening at the moment. And a possible use case for Web3, right? Royalties, you know, understanding digital property rights and Fragnova is a really exciting part of our portfolio, looking at a universal library of assets, including, you know, 3D objects and assets as fragments that could be reassembled into into various things. And so whether it's them or somebody else, I personally think it's, it's a great use case for Web3, or at least how it would interact with the Web3 stack. But does it raise questions around ownership? So, you know, who owns... AI. It's called open AI. Like to what extent is it actually open? And, you know, how do we as proponents of Web3, who are very much focused on kind of communal ownership, truly open source protocols, truly permissionless systems, how do we feel about open AI as, a, as an entity? It's such a difficult one. And every I think that's a really personal question. And probably every person is going to have a slightly different view on this. But I think what it reminds us is that, you know, I'm a technologist. Technology is amazing. But in terms of ethical questions and around, yes, we can do that. Should we do that? The human is always going to be important. And when you're talking about software, even if you're talking about software that consumes and talks to other software, humans are always the person who is the end consumer of this. Machines don't yet make technology for themselves. It is all for humans. So Web3, I think we're seeing lots of really interesting things coming out at the moment, like the whole refi movement, which is a real reminder that we can't just leave our future to technology like open AI. We have to be proactive and make these ethical decisions. Yeah, actually, it's really interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought about the role of refi in the context of open AI. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting one. Obviously, we, we should be having a refi program next year. So I'll make sure we, we feed that into the theme. Rianne, a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for coming on. We'll definitely get you on again to talk about this and some of the innovations that we see emerge in 23. Brilliant. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this section on decentralization and scalability. Keep listening to hear from our token economics team on DeFi and the NFT market. But what we're really looking for is kind of a set of learnings, principles, insights that hopefully you as founders, investors can feed into your day-to-day lives. So today we've got Robert and Leo, both from our token economics team. Welcome both. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Jamie. So maybe we kind of start off at a high level with you, Robert. Obviously, as I said, it's been a very eventful year. I mean, when isn't it an eventful year in crypto? But I think especially if we look at 
some of the projects that were almost regarded as blue chip at the beginning part of the year, you know, many of which are either under some severe severe pressure or don't exist at all. And so I kind of want to reflect a little bit whether that's specific to certain projects and learnings. So Robert, can you tell us some of the kind of key learnings, takeaways that you've had as a senior member of the token economies team from some of those high profile projects? Yeah, so I think a lot of the projects are looking to pivot away from governance only tokens. So we saw them emerge from DeFi summer and throughout 2022. But now I think there's a higher or more emphasis on providing additional utility to the token. So whether improving the user experience or any other utilities that that token can offer the token holder, and this is all around removing or lowering the velocity of the token. So that's essentially how often they change hands. So the stickiness of the token to token holders is what we want and what we're starting to see more of. So do you think that's the end of governance tokens or do you just think that they need to kind of evolve it's like a v2 yeah i think it's certainly a v2 i don't think governance is going anywhere we have seen some stress tests of the governance process over this sort of downward period in the market so obviously there's some protocols that have suffered hacks or any other unfortunate event that have then created some important governance decisions that have been referred to the token holders. And we've really stressed that governance process. So I think governance won't go anywhere. But I also think that the market has wisened up and they want to see additional utility. And if there isn't, it seems to be quite called out on on Twitter or something like that. And noticeable that governance is the utility to the token. Yeah, I mean, I guess velocity is okay in a bull market, but in a bear market, it can create this downward pressure, right? So so is that why governance tokens were so popular in, in a in a bull market, but perhaps don't work in a in a down market? Yeah, I think that's one part of it. But I also think that governance tokens were sort of the first iteration of app specific tokens on a large scale. And we didn't see as much innovation as we usually see in a bear market. It was a lot of forking and rebranding and launching on new chains and essentially copying and pasting the existing governance models. So bear markets are really good for forcing innovation because these protocols have to adapt to survive essentially. And they've been stress tested through this market period and they have to adapt. Otherwise, unfortunately, they'll sort of fade away. I love that actually, because of course, people always talk about bear markets are great to build in, but actually the pressure to innovate is more intense. So that's a... That's a really awesome insight. Could maybe before we move in onto onto Leo and, and get into a little bit more about what we're seeing in the NFT space from some of the more high profile projects, what have been the big learnings or kind of key innovations that we're we're kind of seeing emerge in twenty two? Yeah, so I think some key innovations that seem to be very popular is the real yield narrative. So um, especially amongst DeFi projects, but it's basically from cash flow positive businesses that are generating real revenues and real income to the treasury. And also there seems to be a lot of us on sharing those revenues with the token holders. So this could potentially create some issues with regulatory uncertainty, but it seems to be a narrative that's looked upon favorably by the market. And then beyond that, I think the vote escrow or the locking narrative where to try and align long-term thinkers with the protocol 
you're required to lock your governance tokens, and then that gives you the governance power over the protocol. So rather than someone buying the tokens, staking them, making a decision or extracting some value for the short term, you're incentivized to lock for the long term. And that hopefully will try and bring the right people and the right long-term thinkers to your project. I guess it also reduces the risk of governance attacks. I guess the real yield narrative you alluded to that <clears throat> regulatory considerations obviously smells a little a little equity-like. So it will be interesting to see how projects navigate that and if that's one of those trends which is short-lived whilst regulators kind of still catch up. All right, let's bounce over to, to Leo. Leo, I know your focus within the token economies team is a big part of it, at least anyway, is around NFTs. Obviously, there's a linkage between the two, which is which is why it's one, one function, one department outlier. Is it true that the NFT space has decoupled from wider crypto or are the two things still quite intimately linked? I would say they're they're still pretty intimately linked. I mean, we've some seen some some verticals of the NFT space outperform the market, especially with the minor market da- downturn. We've seen art and utility focused NFTs outperforming the wider market, but still, despite despite the the larger downturn, we've seen innovation across the space, especially Web two brands coming into the space, activating on the journey, and Web three native brand building. Yeah, and so I think that's a really interesting theme, right? Some people call it Web 2.5. Some people just see it as you know, large multinationals adopting Web 3. There were some really high-profile ones this year, some surprising ones actually as well. I think Reddit by by one some of my favorite has one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest drops that's ever happened in the history of NFTs, right? Could you talk us through some of the more high profiles? So I think there are, there are three significant examples that happened this year. The first one would be Nike acquisitions of Artifact. Technically, that happened December last year, but we've seen all the effects this year, and they've they continue to to build and innovate. They've lost, just launched Dot Swooch, which is an education and kind of trading platform to for users to learn about Web three, to buy products and virtual products and wearables. Then you had Starbucks. They launched Starbucks Odyssey. Essentially, Starbucks brought their whole whole loyalty system onto Polygon. And if I'm not mistaken, it's the largest loyalty program in the world. So what happens is that Starbucks customers and members can exp- do interactive experiences, earn NFTs and in-game points, and get rewards and experiences for that in return. And then, as you already mentioned, Reddit, probably one of the my most favorite this year, is they airdropped avatar NFTs to their most active holders so they it's incentivizing the and rewarding the most active users and in general i think they they minted more than five million nfts in this initiative and the great thing about reddit was that users were onboarded onto web3 rails without even noticing so what reddit did is they they put everything in the back they come with the complicated ui and ux and the terminology all that happened in the back while providing value to the user yeah i mean so some really interesting things in that so the first one is is that some brands have chosen to try to educate users explicitly about Web3 and about the fact that what they're doing is Web3, whilst others have tried to obfuscate that from a user experience. They've tried to make it almost in- invisible that they're using Web3. What do you think that kind of tells us about the state of, of Web3 in terms of its usability, its complexity, and also the readiness for the general user to begin to adopt it? I think it comes down to 
to a factor we talk about a lot, which is UX and UI being still too complicated and us being very early in the space. And I think calling NFTs digital collectibles and not talking about blockchain or all this other kind of stuff, it's it's a phase we are in right now to gain more traction. And it's important to like make users aware of the value that's able to capture also from the user side there. But in the long run, I think education and really getting to know the systems is the only way forward. What do you think about Meta's forays into Web3? Obviously, Instagram has now made NFTs possible. Do you have any concerns around this kind of connecting of the social graph, the existing Web2 social graph of users, profile data across the Meta properties with wallets? I think it's hard to assess the long-term the long-term view and the long-term effects of this integration. In general, I'm very bullish on 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 Meta, especially Instagram integrating NFTs and possibly they're going to launch their own marketplace as well in the short to midterm. And I think this is bullish simply from, from a perspective sim- like Reddit. They onboard possibly or it's the same as Apple. People complain about the 30% tax with the right. But still, there's a possibility of onboarding millions of users onto wallets without them without them understanding what is happening to them. Still, I think Web2 social graph, we've seen so many negative examples of what happens in terms of user sovereignty, in terms of privacy, data transparency, that in the long run, just bringing Web3 value and Web3 mechanisms onto the Web2 social graph is detrimental to the user. So there needs to be ideally a Web3 solution to that problem or the demand for Web3 solutions becomes so large that these incumbents tend to develop in another direction. Yeah, interesting. So to kind of bounce back to you, Robert, you know, you mentioned earlier this great point around a requirement to innovate in a bear market. What are, you know, one of the things when I speak to people about what the work that we do at Outlier Ventures, especially in, in the token economy team, is most people just can't see how a typical founder, even if relatively technical, can possibly design a perfect economy. You know, they're not economists, and even economists get things wrong more often than they get things right. So, how can we possibly expect? you know, a founder, a couple of founders to build a great product, but also design a perfect token economy? Yeah, I don't think there is, and we haven't seen yet a perfect token economy, but I think the key base layer to all of this is the product. So if the product isn't as as good as it could be, or isn't finding product market fit and real revenues, then the token economy and the token design won't be able to save that. So I think what we'll see over this bear market and sort of the market over the next few years is a real emphasis on revenue generating and tokens or products finding product market fit prior potentially to the token being launched or the token complementing that. Yeah, and I think we've seen, I mean, internally, I know that we there's a certain readiness or requirement from a product perspective before teams even get to speak to you guys about a token. And I think that emphasis on a token effectively augmenting the value of a product and how people interact with it is 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 really critical you know if we if we kind of look forward what are the what are the basics that you think a good token economy needs to have in place because of course they can be incredibly complex 
especially if the lower you go down in, in the stack. But what, what are the kind of basics that you're advising teams to think about and, and put in place as they roll out or evolve the token economy? Yeah, so I think our general advice is the token should complement the product and ideally incentivize the users to do actions that benefit the product or the, the protocol as a whole. And also we want the token to complement it in a way that it improves the user experience. So we don't want the token to add friction or make things a lot more difficult for the user because Web3, as we all know, is already difficult enough for the average person. So if we can give the token enough utility that it improves the user experience and improves any of the other functions within the product without adding too much friction, that's essentially what we aim to advise to any teams that we work with. Cool. And I know also in a bear market, we're also doing a lot more advisory work or looking to do a lot more advisory work with live networks on versioning. Could you maybe talk about how you think existing networks out there are going to have to evolve to survive? Yeah, for sure. So we've seen it in a few high profile DeFi projects recently with Sushi being one. There's a governance proposal on a potential token design change just to try and save the pro project really because they need to pivot otherwise they'll run out of money. So I think we will see a lot of that potentially a lot of these projects such as Sushi was a fork of Uniswap originally. They potentially didn't innovate from the start and they have managed to ride on the coattails of the bull market and make, make it through quite far to a quite a significant market cap. But now is when, as I said before, you have to start innovating in the bear market because of the pressure where the forge the diamonds or it'll just disappear. So I think we have to advise projects to um, not incentivize too many actions and throw away their tokens. These are a sacred commodity that you will need, but you also need to work on generating real revenues, real product market fit, and try and have a sustainable token system using r real, real users and real value that you're creating. Yeah, and I think we've seen that in Ascent, our later stage advisory that comes after Basecamp. Teams that had both a strong commercial equity proposition that was very revenue focused, very customer focused alongside a kind of token economy have the better capitalized, they have bigger runways, and they're not too reliant upon the performance of a token, which is something they can't necessarily control, right? All tokens still seem to go up or down despite any any real fundamentals. So Leo, as we kind of look forward into 23, I know that you and the team think IP is going to be a really big factor here. We've already seen roll-ups happen in the case of Yuga Labs. And Futureverse, one of our portfolio just announced today, a roll-up of, of several different propositions, including IP and infrastructure. Do we expect to see, well, firstly, what is the role and function of IP? Are we going to see more native IP? Are we going to see that being overwhelmed by by existing IP brought into Web3? And do we think in a bear market, we're more likely to see greater consolidation and mergers and acquisitions as a result of you know, some projects struggling, running out of money, but maybe having interesting IP or community? Okay, interesting question. So in terms of consolidation and projects running out of money, there are probably a few projects that this happens to, but in general, we've seen those established projects, Doodles, Azuki, Yuga, etc., all raising big, large rounds. I think Yuga almost raised up to half a billion in order to extend the ecosystem. So there's no fear of that for the for the existing blue chip projects. In general, 
what we what we probably see going forward and what we see happening around IP is that even though you have built a strong IP, especially now in those market conditions, you need to diversify your business model. It's very similar to what Robert had, says, had said before as well. And what we see happening is that those projects who've made it successfully until here, they are starting to build their world. It's world building, brands building out the ecosystem in a variety of ways, usually with the NFT component or integration at the center play. So they want to create diversified streams of revenue that accrue value to the ecosystem and monetize on those. I wouldn't say that there's like a, a rivalry between Web2 brands entering the space and Web3 brands building their own worlds and building their own ecosystem. Because first of all, I mean, there's a shared user base they're competing for, but still it is to some extent different. And the way they want to activate is also different. Web3 native brands are a lot more degen and want to be a lot more degen currently than those Web2 or Web2.5 brands entering. And I guess we're also seeing a maturing of the industry away from drops, one-off drops or drops as fundraising to drops being almost a form of recurring revenue. So as you said, a lot of these blue chips are now raising substantial venture capital into their equity business, presumably because if you look at both drops, but increasingly royalties, you know, the money money made in royalties in the secondary market, this is like some serious recurring revenue, right? So this is this is an evolution in the industry. It's an interesting topic because we are currently in this debate where we're going with royalties. We've Got those marketplaces, pseudo, blur, et cetera, popping up, which incentivize trading heavily by cutting royalties. And then you have those marketplaces like OpenSea coming out, being pro-creator, pro-royalties, trying to enforce royalties in an ambiguous, in a different, in a difficult way. Still, you're right. What we're seeing is that those projects, especially around IP and community, they need to prove that they can generate revenue not only from royalties, which is a big part of it and probably will continue a big part of it in the future, but what we talk about in the in the token economies and in, in the NFT team is that we see those projects building circles around their Genesis NFT of different price or value points, not only consisting of NFTs. So in order to attract a larger user base to tap in those different price points and become participants on the ecosystem and capitalize on those. So, Robert, maybe bringing those two things together, what is the interplay? What do we expect there to be between fungible and non-fungible? Yeah, I think we're yet to see the real interplay begin. There's a few different sort of entry points that we're starting to see now, especially in some areas with like our financial NFTs or any of these sort of things. But I think we're yet to see something really explode with the NFT and or non-fungible and fungible token. But I think something like Yugo with ApeCoin and obviously their NFT collections, I think something like that, where you have such a large fan base, I suppose, already that now are getting their first taste of fungible tokens and the benefits that come with them and potentially the extra, extra complexities that come along with fungible tokens as well. But I think once these big brands start branching out into fungible tokens, that's when we'll really see it become quite a bit more common to see the two. Awesome. Look, thanks guys for coming on. Great to chat to you. I think we'll probably do this a little bit more regularly. I'm sure our listeners found that very insightful. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for listening to this episode on DeFi and NFTs. This concludes this two-part episode where we've covered the wider Web3 landscape and how Outlier is reacting to it.
Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Metaverse Podcast. If you'd like to know more about Outlier and what we do, please visit outlierventures.io. And if you're interested in applying to one of our programs, head over to outlierventures.io slash Basecamp or click on the Basecamp tab on the main website and homepage for more information. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 